0: it's Frightful again. As always, sitting here in the old abandoned radio station, I decided to take some of the old studio equipment out for a spin and see if they still work. So for tonight, Midnight, the podcasting hour, becomes Midnight, the call-in show. And I can already see the switchboard lighting up, so let's go to our first caller. Hello, you're on the air.
1: Hello, PJ. Guess who it is?
0: Why, it's Dr. Krazos, my favorite mad scientist. Hello, Doctor. What horrible abomination are you working on these days?
1: My latest creation is another monster to terrorize the world.
0: Of course.
1: It's ten feet tall, has massive hands, and razor-sharp teeth. And it kills everything in sight. And I call it the Gothoon Man.
0: What does "Gulfoon Man mean?
1: Well, nothing, actually. I made it up. You'd be amazed at how many monster names are copyrighted.
0: So what makes this monster different from all of the other horrors you've unleashed on the world?
1: As you may know, my last creation was made from the body of a former wrestler. Genetically engineered to ten feet tall. My one mistake was putting the brain of a shark in the monster's body.
0: Sure, that was your one mistake.
1: Of course. The shark's singular focus on hunting and eating everything in its path was the right instinct. But the shark brain lacks the sensitivity, receptors, to process a world of prey on dry land. So... So... I created the monster again with the brain of a shark and the brain of a gorilla to act as a balance.
0: Two brains? One a shark and one a gorilla?
1: Uh huh. That's it now. Can you hear it? It's magnificent. Would you like to see it, PJ?
0: the way you're describing it, how could I not?
1: I recorded the creature's awakening. It was glorious. Tore my lapisus into pieces. He's all over the place now. There. Just emailed you the video. Look for yourself.
0: Okay. It's just a link.
1: Yes. Click it to see the video.
0: Damn it! (laughs) You created a terrible, murderous monster just as an excuse to Rickroll me? You really are crazy, Dr. Krasos. Gotta admit, that was pretty good. Okay, next caller.
2: Welcome back to another episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. I'm Ryan Daly, and I am so excited to kick off the fifth feature of this anthology podcast, which is devoted to DC's spirit of vengeance, The Spectre. My first guest on this rotating feature made his podcast debut a couple of months ago on the Secret Origins podcast, where we talked about the Newsboy Legion and Project Cadmus. He's a professional artist who has worked on Looney Tunes and Young All-Stars for DC, as well as Harbinger and Turok Dinosaur Hunter for Valiant Comics, just to name a few of his credits. Please welcome Howard Simpson to the show. How are you, Howard?
3: Hey, I'm doing fine, Ryan. How are you doing today?
2: I am very good. Thank you for, uh, for being my guest on this section. I'm really excited to talk to you again.
3: Hey, yeah, I'm I'm happy to be here. I'm I'm working my way up from a bottom, so I could become a permanent rotating host. <laughs> yeah,
2: that's, that's the goal. Just keep chipping away at that one. So. I guess. <laughs> Uh There's something that I like to ask all of my new guests whenever they come onto the show, which is about your experience.
3: No, not a virgin. Oh, that wasn't it. Okay, go ahead.
2: <laughs> well, that one—that one was in my notes later on. I was going to wait about ten minutes before we get there. Um, <laughs> what is your experience with the horror genre in general and the horror comics in particular? Uh, was this something that you grew up with? Did you read these types of stories? Did you like them?
3: Um, my first introduction to the horror genre was through TV, through the old black and white movies that used to show, you know, on Sundays and mm-hmm. Saturdays and. Mm-hmm. Um, And I'm from New Jersey. So we had creatures features, you know, the midnight shows and stuff like that. So uh, the Wolfman was probably my favorite of all. I'm talking Mm -hmm. about the Junior because of the transformation process, I guess, as artists being very visual. And even though it was hokey at the time, even now, there's still a certain charm to watching him change. Um, but yeah, Universal Monsters were basically my main introduction to the, to the horror genre. You know, and then Costello meets Frankenstein, so comedy meets horror. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
3: So it, it just kept going on, you know. So like it was like uh, Reese's Chocolate and Peanut Butter together, you know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Absolutely. One of my favorites.
3: Yes. And as I became aware of the horror genre in comics with House of Mystery, House of Secrets uh, through DC, yeah, I started uh, picking those up. And those, those are very interesting and well done. And they were like a different flavor than the superheroes I had been reading at the time. And one thing that was really appealing was that they were short stories. So you could get a lot happening in one issue Mm -hmm. and the variety and the artists and the writers I mean, you just never knew what to expect. And that was one thing I liked about uh, anthology series like the horror and science fiction is that it just gave you a whole range of things that you could just experience. Yeah. And eventually from the DC Comics started buying the Warren magazines, uh, eerie, creepy. And again, I mean, I mean, just took it up a notch because it seemed like the comics grew with me because – you know, by the time I was older and reading the war magazines, you know, just stories obviously a little bit more adult in, in the magazines. So it's like, wow, yes, yeah. so I was just ready for it.
2: I, I'm fascinated by what you, that you said the Wolfman was always one of your favorites of those universal monsters because of the transformation effect. And from your perspective as an artist and really liking the visual of that and being able to play with that, that's really cool. I never thought about it that way.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, because America Werewolf in London, mm-hmm. that whole movie was created just because it thought of a new way to do the transformation effect.
2: <laughs> Absolutely. And, the, and that's <laughs> a payoff. Uh, I, yeah. I think I think that one scene is probably worth the price of admission for that one. Yeah, yeah, I love it. All right. As I said, Howard and I are here to talk about the comic starring The Spectre, a supernatural superhero who first debuted back in 1940. His origin was first told across issues 52 and 53 of more fun comics. It was retold in Secret Origins issue 15. And you can hear me and Gene Hendricks cover that story on the Secret Origins podcast, you know, if that was something you'd be into. I won't get into all of the details, but essentially, Jim Corrigan is a hard-boiled detective in 1940 who gets murdered by gangsters. After he dies, though, his spirit is halted by a voice, ostensibly the voice of God, who sends Corrigan back to Earth to strike evil down with great vengeance and furious anger. You know, the whole Ezekiel 2517 bit from Pulp Fiction. (laughs) So Jim Corrigan comes back, but he's still technically dead. Whenever crime needs avenging, he sheds the look of an Irish cop for a pale-skinned ghost with a green-hooded cape. As the Spectre, he is supremely powerful. He can do pretty much anything to punish the wicked. And as we will see, he can get awfully creative in his retribution. Uh, So, Howard, what is your history with the Spectre himself? Like, Do you remember how and when you first discovered this character?
3: Oh, yeah, definitely. And it's weird because... I discovered him almost exactly the way he was written, like from the 40s, in, in chronological order, I should <laughs> say, uh, because I read the original *Secret Origins uh, reprint when it was just reprints and not yep, news yep. And that was when I, I first saw The Spectre, and they had both of uh, the more fun comics in one, one issue. So, so, I mean, um, it was interesting, the, the concept, but the art was so weak. Mm. And interestingly enough... Jerry Siegel, yeah. the co created Superman, created the Spectre. And they had been, with Siegel and Schuster, had both been working on more fun comics and left it to create Superman. So they left an issue for 32 of more fun comics. Mm-hmm. But then Siegel came back in issue 52 of more fun comics to create the Spectre with Bernard Bailey. And Bernard didn't quite have the, the style, the jazz that, that Schuster had uh, for drawing, So the stories seemed pretty bland. At the time that I read it. So Spectre never really became one of my favorite characters at that time. Now, after that story, you saw him in Justice League, you know, with the Justice Society. But again, he wasn't really used that much. Mm -hmm. And again, because he was so powerful, you know, they kind of just inhibited him or just had him stand in the background with Dr. Fate. You know, they were just both standing in the corner where they both could solve everything, you know, with a wave of their hand. So, again, not really feeling the Mm (laughs) specter So then I came across some reprints from his showcase uh, run and his own series. So
2: the one from the sixties?
3: Yes, from the sixties. Yep. Yep. And again, these are all reprints, so I'm I'm encountering them in, in chronological order, not in, in real time, <laughs> in a very condensed amount of time. So and so I didn't see. So again, I, I wasn't reading every story in order for, in Showcase and his series because his series I think only lasts like eight issues or something like that. Yeah. So you know they were just reprints into to, to giant size or whatever. So it became a little bit more interesting because he's battling supernatural, you know, this great Murphy Anderson art. And I, I still haven't seen the Neil Adams issue, and I'm gonna have to go make an effort to to read those. So, but still, you know, nothing really like it's like was like jumping out at me about the Spectre. But then came Adventure Comics <laughs> Thirty One. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh my goodness! When I sat and read that first issue, it was I—I uh, I felt dirty. I felt <laughs> how how are they allowed to do this in comics? And then every issue after that, it was like I was looking around, feeling like I would get caught. Like something's wrong here.
2: <laughs> that is, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But that is certainly the uh, the presence of Joe Orlando, the new editor who was uh, who was running the show, who had come from the world of the House of Mystery and House of Secrets and yeah, yeah, those horror yeah. books. Yeah, I mean, throughout more than 75 years of publication, the Spectre has had some really impressive runs by talented creators. I mean, you mentioned he was created by the same guy who wrote the first Superman In the 90s, you had the Spectre stories by John Ostrander and Tom Mandrake, which are wonderful. I love those books. Um, you got this one kind of right in the middle by Aparo and Michael Fleischer. Uh, Even the 80s series that I think tends to get kind of forgotten. I mean, it was written by Doug Mensch with art on the first couple issues by Gene Colan, one of my favorite artists ever, Gene Colan. So that that one was good, too.
3: That was a perfect match, Gene Colan on the Spectre.
2: Yeah, couldn't do better, so. For this podcast, though, at least initially, we're focusing on the stories, as mentioned, published in Adventure Comics in the mid-1970s, that were written by Michael Fleischer and mostly illustrated by Jim Aparo. This run, as Howard mentioned, began in Adventure Comics issue 431, which was cover dated January-February of 1974. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, the actual on-sale date was October 30th, 1973, just in time for Halloween that year. That's awesome. Uh, The book was edited by Joe Orlando and cost only 20 cents. The comic included two stories, the lead featuring the Spectre that we're going to be talking about, and a backup story called Is a Snurl Human that one of my listeners keeps asking me to cover on this podcast, and I'm sure I will get around to it eventually.
3: That that Alex Toaster, that's Mm. great.
2: But for now, the cover to Adventure Comics 431 is by Jim Aparo. It depicts the specter looming large over a man who had been holding a rifle, but has dropped it because his hands are melting into a flesh-colored pool. What do you think of this cover?
3: Well, the cover is
2: deceptive
3: because we haven't seen the inside yet. (laughs) So, you know, my first impression was it was like, you know, any of um, his 60s adventures, you know, it's just symbolic mm-hmm. that something's going to happen or, you know, he's just making it seem like it's going to happen and then everything's going to revert to normal. So that that's my first impression of the cover as far as um, the character is concerned. As far as that gym apparel art and apparels at the top of his game. And because he just just gives you the information you need. (laughs) And it tells the whole story. The specter hovering, gesturing, guys melting, say no more.
2: (laughs) And that was a thing that was really common that uh, Bailey established in those early golden ages was the specter being giant. Like, that was one of his signature powers in the golden age, that he would just draw him as this huge figure kind of hovering over the city. And Aparo does it in a way that I don't know if anybody has ever done it as well, because he doesn't seem like he's as big as a skyscraper, but he is larger than human. He is larger than natural. The way he's kind of coming out of the air and reaching for this guy who's just – ah, uh, his arms are melting. It's like he's liquefying. It is horrifying, but it's like – you look at that. I look at this, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I need to I need to turn the page. I need to see exactly what's on the next page. So it's, this is really exciting.
3: Yes, and because what you mentioned about Bailey establishing that, I mean, the first issue of More Fun, he's just standing there. He's not, he's not mm-hmm. gesturing anything, and, and the crooks are freaking out.
2: Yeah, but the way other artists have done it is they definitely give him a sense of menace and, and sort of yeah, improving yeah. on that formula.
3: But. So, yeah, it's definitely – it's like continuing the legacy.
2: Yeah, exactly. So. All right, folks. We are going to take a short break right now to play a promo for some other podcast. When we return, Howard's going to tell you all about The Wrath of the Spectre. Don't go away.
4: When you think of podcasts about
3: religion, you probably think of this…
0: But at least one religion podcast sounds more like… this. I kick ass for the Lord!
2: Darkness to Light is a relatively geeky production in which Alan and Emily discuss topics of faith, religion, and spirituality.
0: But we do so through the lens of pop culture, like movies, TV, and comic books. Because we're nerds.
4: Our primary focus will be on Christianity, because that's what we know best. But all religious content is on the table. Think about it, Scully, from vampirism to Catholicism. This is an
0: occasional cast, to be recorded and released as the mood strikes with topics ranging from in-depth reviews to personal rants about some small aspect of theology or church history. Because we're theological nerds.
4: If these topics interest you, check out dorknesstolight.blogspot.com for our more regular content.
0: Or dorknesstolight.tumblr.com for our more irregular content. Memes and puns, mostly. My bad.
3: Dorkness to light.
0: Often irreverent, rarely
3: sacrilegious. The title of the story is The Wrath of the Spectre. The script is by Michael Fleischer, art continuity by Russell Carley, and editor is Joe Orlando. And Jim Apparel did the art, and even though it doesn't receive credit, he did the lettering also. Now, art continuity is a weird thing. You never saw that before or since, but basically what they should have just said is that he did layouts. Mm -hmm. I mean, basically, so. I don't know why they came up with that weird designation for it. Now let's get to the story. An armor car is rolling. A mass posse shows up with fire grenades and uses them. The random cops say, okay, player, you got us. Don't shoot. rat tat tat One thug works them all. Hey, Fritz, you didn't have to shoot them. Fritz says, ah, shut up. Dude looks like the cops, I hate cops. Go get the cabbage. The fuzz rolls up, spitting heat. Bang, bang. One thug gets hit. They tagged Pete. Fritz says, don't worry about Pete. Right that, that. that mofo wax Pete. Now that's gangster. 5-0 <laughs> lets them go because they can't compete against submachine guns and calls it in. Send the meat wagon. Lieutenant Corrigan finds a clue at the scene, the business card for an antique shop. Stupid crooks. Back at the thug's hideout, they get crunk and say Fritz didn't have to ice Pete like that. Fritz says, I ah, shut up. we're all bunching with more Benjamins now, so lay low the crew wimps out and says anything you say fritz charlie goes back to his nine to five dun 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 the antique shop corrigan shows up to the antique shop charlie is like hey what's cracking corrigan mad dogs charlie and tells him to spill his guts about the armored car heist charlie goes for his gat and tries to bust a cap in corrigan he fades away and tells charlie don't even trip charlie's tripping he ain't messing with no spook he grabs his green and gets out of dodge on his way, he stops at a phone booth to holler at his boy, Hank. Hello, Hank. There's a spook after us. I'm leaving, and you should, too. Oh, Charlie, you've been sipping too much drank. Spectre hovers nearby and hears everything. Charlie is back on the road, but not for long. A giant Spectre blocks his path, so he takes a hard right off the cliff to oblivion. Next day, Hank is chillaxing and reading in the newspaper about Charlie's accident. Spectre comes through the wall and tells him he better recognize Hank and Specter chopping it up. What do you want, Spook? On the real? I just want to take a dirt nap. But your thug stench keeps me up. <laughs> Spectre gets bored with the chit-chat. Time for some spirit justice. Spectre starts melting the gun and then Hank's hands. What the hell? Please, don't, please. Hank pees himself as he becomes a puddle of human flesh. Mm. Cold-blooded. Fritz is kicking it on an airplane, dreaming about slapping Tickle with some skank in South America. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, well said. <laughs> Sorry. <The specter. laughs> Sorry, keep keep going.
3: The specter appears from Fritz's pipe smoke and lays down the law. I have come for you, villain. Look into my eyes and die. Fritz is like, I ain't no fool. I'm not peeping your peepers. He shoot. He shouts to the people around him, hey, this man is threatening me. But the passengers can't see the Spectre, so they think he's been smoking too much chronic. Fritz goes all cray-cray and grabs a fine honey and puts a gun to her head. I'll kill her. I'll do it. Spectre doesn't miss a beat. He can't really deal with someone who's hiding behind a skirt anyway. Lights out on the plane. Lights back on. Fritz is just bare bones holding a gun. Everybody on the plane loses their damn minds. Therapy attendance is about to go up. <laughs> Next morning, Corrigan is back at his daily grind, getting his ass chewed out by the police chief because he hasn't found the robbers. Corrigan says, don't worry, chief. They don't stand a ghost of a chance. <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge, say no more. The end.
2: Oh, man, I got to put you on retainer and have you do all of my story synopses. <laughs>
3: <laughs> hey, I would love them. They're fun.
2: <laughs> all right, uh, thank you very much for that. That was great. Uh, Welcome, everybody. Back on the Secret Origins podcast was clamoring for you to do another story synopsis, and I, I, I know they're going to love to hear that one. So, all right, diving into the issue. Um, right from the first page. Uh, just I, I love the opening splash page, and it's just a, a uh, kind of like a poster shot. We get a plane flying through a stormy night sky, the Spectre huge coming out of the clouds. We get the Wrath of the Spectre, sort of a wavy title. And what I really like about it is Aparo seems to use more of a, a harder line edge on the hood and the cape and his gloves, but on the specter's body, on the pale part, on his arms and his torso – it's not as defined it looks a little bit more like it's kind of coming out of the clouds and a little bit more like i just said like just not as defined and a little bit less less substantial uh, and i just i think that's a really cool effect for the character
3: it is and i was going to mention that myself because Uh, the cover on this page and 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 he picks strategic moments to do it because he doesn't forget that he is a specter and he's a ghost and visual just is his way of communicating that by having the the white parts of his body almost become parts of the background or very less defined and and not having a hard edge line around him you know he lets the form just emerge from the background Mm
2: -hmm. in fact it almost kind of looks like he's coming out of one of the lightning bolts there's like a, yes. a point where the lightning, the yellow reflecting off of his trunks, but it seems to sort of kind of be bleeding into the edge of his ribs too. Like it's almost a part of him. So, as he, I mean, I love the design of the character. It's such a, a cool, simple thing that you'd get out of the Golden Age. Um, I like the fact that his cloak has a hood, but also a collar. Yeah, that's like <laughs> such I like, I don't know if I've. I don't know if I've seen that anywhere else.
3: This is definitely distinctive and again, it's something goofy that will only be done during the um, Golden Age. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the recent incarnation, they got rid of the little tie, you know, because he had these Mm -hmm. little strings that hung down also. So it really looked like, you know, it was like he was like a green, red, right? (laughs) A green riding hood. Yeah. Tied it. I'm going out to kill some robbers. Okay, God, bye.
2: And something else about Aparo's vision of this character and the specter with his hood if you look back at the earliest images that Bernard Bailey did the hood always made a little bit of a widow's peak in the center of his forehead but it's mm-hmm. so much more angular so much more pointed and menacing the way that Aparo draws it and that would really be the signature that a lot of artists in the future would replicate and kind of give it a little bit more of that jagged edge widow's peak uh, and I, I think it's great I think it's a great touch for the character
3: Yeah, and also uh, Apparel. Is also playing with some some visual uh, trickery here because the hood shape never matches the shadow,
0: mm-hmm. you
3: know. So he has a whole different shadow, you know, just so he can have you know those those blank eyes, right? You know, which he uses for his death stare.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has, like we get that when the uh, when he shows up on the airplane when he's confronting Fritz. He has that moment where you see the skulls in his eyes. And again, that was a visual motif that went back to the Golden Age, that every artist kind of uses that. When, I mean, I called this back earlier, like, the Spirit of Vengeance, which is a title usually reserved for Ghost Rider over at Marvel Comics, who has his own little pen and stare. And it's kind of funny that they both have this kind of uh, effect, this power thing that seems to be stemming from what their eyes can do. When
3: Parallel did it, I mean, this, this was definitely the most dramatic Jeff Stare had ever seen yeah. uh, up, up until this point. Yeah.
2: Getting into the story, I love how this starts off. I mean, it's an action-packed story. I mean, the the whole story, we should say, is only 12 pages, by the way. Uh, And it moves briskly. It it moves a clip.
3: more is happening than the pages cover.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and actually with the the first page being just a splash, it's really the story, the meat of it is just 11 pages. And -hmm. the first two of those are – we just have like this highway robbery of these, you know, gangsters with machine guns and grenades taking out an armored car riddling the cops with bullets. I mean, this is clearly, the Spectre lives in a world of violence and murder. Uh, so we're going to see it. This is definitely different than what people were getting in Superman and Batman comics of the time.
3: Yeah, this is uh, just setting up so that uh, when the Spectre does mete out justice, it's definitely justifies. Like, mm-hmm. okay, these guys deserve it. Yeah, you know, yeah. There's no in-between. There's no hope for redemption. And also, both Fleischer and Apparel, I mean, they really did the homework for the Golden Age uh, I'll talk about the uh, flash and stuff later, but starting off with the power right here, um, because one of the things they did in the Golden Age artists, they had these thick borders, and this power brings it back here. You know, So, again, it's, it's harkening back to, to the legacy of the yeah. character and, and bringing it forward.
2: Yeah, the and, panel borders, you're right. I didn't, I didn't even notice that, but I do see it now.
3: This is why I'm here, Ryan. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Leave your tips at the door.
2: <laughs> you have the background. You have the eye for this thing. You should be catching these things.
3: <laughs> and also, for an action packed story, I mean, there's, there's no heroes jumping around, there's no fist fights. Mm-hmm. And this is why Apparel is at the top of his game and the right person for this book because he can draw a car moving like nobody's business. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, he knows how to draw figures in action and moving it. I mean, even though they're just, I mean, like, just just look at the first page. I mean, the stance of the guys, you know, before release the um, release, they're, they're off balance, but, you know, they're about to fire. I mean, they're, like, coiled like a lion ready to spring. And then, mm-hmm. and then the rent of cops, you know, spilling out of the, the back of the truck. I mean, there's no stiff figure anywhere.
2: No, you're right. So then we get Corgan shows up. And he does find the the business card, the antiques dealer shop card, uh, in in one of the goons who was murdered by his buddy Fritz because he he got <laughs> shot and wounded. So they're like, "Well, we're leaving this guy behind, but we're not going to let him talk." So they kill him off. He's got a card for Golden Age antiques. I thought that was a nice little uh, nice yeah. little egg. So,
3: so now they're kind of hitting it over the head. Yeah, you know, <laughs> like being too obvious about it. But you know, for readers. <laughs> That's probably a good touch.
2: So you caught the very subtle panel border thing. I'm catching the very obvious (laughs) hit-you-over-the-head Easter egg. egg. (laughs) Um, And then we get this whole thing with – Fritz, the leader of this gang, says, okay, we've got to lay low. You you go back to your garage. You go back to your antique shop. Oh, Fritz, what are you going to do? I'm heading to South America with yeah. the money. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, what? We just helped you rob a, an armored car and kill cops? Now you're going to party it up in South America while we go back to our day jobs? It's like, yeah. it's like I, I wouldn't want to work for this guy anyway because he already killed one of his gang <laughs> members for getting right, for shot. Right. But this is like... Dude, isn't the point of the robbery to have fun with the loot? Like, so. well,
3: obviously Fritz is the brains because yeah. these guys are dodo's. Yeah.
2: yeah, and he says I'll come back and a little I'll come after I've wait after I've blown through all my cash, I'll come back and we'll plan another one.
3: Yeah, like, yeah. So he tells them to lay low, don't spend your money, but I'm gonna go out and have a good time. You know, then I come back later. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. These these are definitely uh henchmen that these are the ones you want to hire when you want you know to do a job. <laughs> exactly,
2: exactly. Um, so then we get Corrigan confronts the first guy on page six. I love the bottom panel with the specter floating, kind of hovering around like mist around the uh, around the phone booth. It seems kind of funny. Like if you take away the the word balloon, the caption, you don't know what's <coughs> happening. My first glimpse of it, I thought he was kind of emerging from the phone booth. As this ghostly spirit, and it it kind of reminded me of a funny little take on the Superman thing, the classic Superman pose of like running uh, the phone, with. and the, obviously once you read it, you realize no he's eavesdropping on the other guy in there, but I still i just i like the the look of him sort of with his cape sort of turning into a vaporous cloud around it It's really cool
3: now my my first thought was that he was doing a plastic man thing
2: <laughs> uh, turning into the no no, he was the car. Oh, because the car is green. Then he came out of the
3: car because you know how Placid Man would be like a briefcase and the crook takes it and then he punches the crooks on the briefcase. So I thought, okay, he's the car. You know, that's not his real car. He became the car. (laughs) That would be cool too. Yeah, yeah. But obviously that's not the case. That was just a coincidence. But yeah, that would have been cool if he had done that. And so – but in the Spectre, I mean right from this uh, first appearance on this page – He's toying with them all. Mm-hmm. He intentionally spooked Charlie. So Charlie would do something stupid. So Charlie does something stupid and he gives him the lead he needs on the next guy. Yep. Okay, so here's where my, my reference for Michael Fleischer going back and doing his homework. Because this happens where the car drives off the cliff. Spectre does that in more fun 55. Hmm. Where the truck goes off the cliff. Now, in that case, it never hits bottom because we, we meet uh, the Spectre's nemesis, Zor. And he countermands what's going to happen, so it never really hits. But this time, uh, Michael Flash lets it go off the cliff, and we know he's not going to survive that. Right,
2: right. And again, using that sort of signature power of just turning huge to freak out the driver, and Charlie goes crazy, drives off the cliff, a horrible fire explosion. And then we cut to the other gang member, Hank, Mm -hmm. who is sitting in his apartment, with a poster on the wall that's the cover of Swamp Thing Issue 5 by Bernie Wrightson. Yes. <laughs> which is also edited by Joe Orlando. So that was a nice little touch.
3: A yeah, nice little touch. And also, that had a supernatural, because in that issue, mm-hmm. there was a
2: witch um,
3: mm-hmm. being, uh, tried, burned at the stake.
2: Yep, that's one of my favorite issues from that run, the early yeah. Len Wein, Bernie Wrightson run. So
3: also, Hank is reading The Daily Bugle.
2: He is.
3: And why would Apparel do that? I mean, we have the Daily Planet, you have the Daily Star, you've got the Gotham Cassette.
2: Well, this is supposed to be the the title page establishes that this is supposed to be in New York. Uh, yeah, and on the first page, the the caption at the yeah. top: "So Jim Gorgon, the toughest cop on the New York force." So uh,
3: still, I mean, it's, it's yeah. the news.
2: <laughs> so yeah, why isn't Spider-Man flying across? They were well, we're in the wrong. We're in the wrong universe.
3: Yeah, either Powell was like making a play for, hey, uh, I like Spider-Man. Maybe you guys did <laughs> like hire me or something. Yeah. Or it's just a little joke or he wasn't even aware of Spider-Man in the Daily Bugle. Right. Because he, he was a DC guy the whole time.
2: Yeah, he was. And gosh, I mean, well, yeah, he did lettering too. So he would have done the whole design of the, the newspaper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's on, I, don't, I don't know. Either that was just like a brain fart like he forgot or that was just an intentional kind of thing.
3: Yeah, yeah, it could be one of a little bit in-jokes. I, I've included quite a few in a lot of the stories I've
1: done.
2: So then Hank picks up a gun, not just any gun, you know, he's got his, like, semi-automatic. Yeah. And Spectre waves his hand, and it starts to melt, and then the hands start to melt, too. And he screams in horror as he just turns into this puddle mm. of protoplasm, and it's mm. uh, it's gruesome. And and already we see the Spectre, the sort of color is fading as he's cr- sort of vanishing from the scene. Like, to go yeah, off he's
3: not hanging around. I mean, he does it, and then he's like, off to the next...
2: Mm-hmm. next. So then he shows up on the plane. He confronts Fritz. I don't know about you, but like this was the one point where it felt like the the murders are sort of like escalating, and this mm-hmm. one felt a little bit anticlimactic of how he meets out the justice against Hank, we, because we don't see it. The lights go out, and then we just see him as a bare skeleton, which is cool. It's a striking image. I mean, you look at mm-hmm. it, you're like, holy hell. But I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just being selfish in that I kind of wanted to see it just because we saw <laughs> we saw the others. We saw him melt a guy, turn a guy into liquid. I kind of wanted to see him just like peel the skin off of this guy. But maybe that maybe that was too much. They're like, yeah, it's still 1973. We can't go crazy and how much we show <laughs> a book for.
3: Yeah, actually, like most of the best horror movies, mm-hmm. leave stuff to to the viewers' imagination. It's That's, even worse. What you could possibly show. That's true. That, I mean,
2: it, it does, it works in movies like Jaws and Alien, and and you, the the fear of the unknown can be just as strong. I just felt in this case, uh, it, it seemed too easy. I don't know. I don't know
3: if don't, I don't it was too easy. It just, 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 just doesn't bother me at all. But I, I can understand your frustration with it because now, after you've been set up mm-hmm. to see everything, then you feel kind of cheated. Like, this should have been the dessert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like inviting somebody to your house for dinner and letting them smell, you know, the dinner's cooking. Say, "Hey, it smells good, doesn't it? Yeah, it's gonna be ready soon." Yeah. And and, and the smell is there, wafting all the department. And then you come out, you just sit down next to the guy. And says, "Was not dinner good?" <laughs>
2: <laughs> and then the final two panels on that page.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: This felt a little awkward to me. It it felt like it was a little bit strangely placed, and I think. I think actually your synopsis did it a little bit better than the way it's presented here, because it feels like it's set up for one of those you know punchlines that aha moment, and Corgan has his line, don't has his line, don't worry, Chief, they don't stand a ghost of a chance. You know, (laughs) laugh. Ah, we get it. The thing is, then the Chief has another line after that, and then Corgan says, yes, sir. So it felt like. The scene went on a little bit too long. It's like they say their joke and then they kept talking and then it ends. And,
3: yeah, and, and the thing is – and that, that final uh, line mm-hmm. also brings up a point that, OK, how can he be the best detective on the force <laughs> if he's killing everybody?
2: Right. He Clearly he can't close this case. There's no yeah. bodies left. He can't. He can't say, "Yep, this case is solved. I got it." Like, okay. no, they, they, you can't prove that those people were there. So it's the case will never be closed officially because all of yeah. your suspects have been murdered in ways that their bodies can never be used. But
3: well, obviously, he must have a lot of other cases, you know, like <laughs> domestic disputes yeah. and things like that, because none of his homicides are ever going to go to trial. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And that is kind of the whole theme of this run, this entire stretch of issues in Adventure Comics that they were doing with the Spectre. And the stories behind that, and now both Howard and I are both, uh, for this story, looking at a copy of the Wrath of the Spectre trade paperback, which I highly recommend. Uh, It includes all of the Adventure Comics runs, including uh, three others that weren't published in the 70s uh, from a book, Wrath of the Spectre, that came out. That was a reprint of those issues. But I highly recommend this. In the beginning, there is an essay by uh, Peter Sanderson, who kind of talks about how the book came together. And one of the stories was Joe Orlando, who, again, had been editing the horror books House of Mystery, Unexpected, House of Secrets. He was brought into Adventure Comics, and he really wanted to do something with horror. That was his forte, but he also knew that he needed to have superheroes in the book. That was what the book was. So he went through DC's archives, and eventually he kind of came upon, well, the Spectre fits both of these molds. But the other thing that happened, the story that they tell, is Joe Orlando was mugged at some point during the production of this book while he everything was getting together. And that experience really stayed with him, uh, and, it, and it kind of messed with him psychologically and he had this – he he, it, he. decided that the vision for this book, the series, would be heavily anti-crime and that the Spectre would go after not supervillains, not, you know, like world-threatening terrorists, just basic hard-boiled murderers and killers, and he would tear them to shreds in the most violent, awful ways. And mm-hmm. and I think this was Joe Orlando kind of exercising his own demons after being victimized during his mugging. So it's it's a really yeah. kind of interesting – Way to think of the headspace that led to this amazing set of comics.
3: And that's the only way I could think that would um, excuse, like, how how they were just let able to run wild. They, I mean, really, they ran buck wild with this. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like every issue I felt like, ooh, boy, I hope my mom doesn't see me reading this. <laughs> you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah, and the, the one thing is, like, it's, it is always the bad people who are being punished the worst. I mean, we mm-hmm. see innocent lives. We see innocent cops getting murdered in the beginning, but the Spectre <laughs> does bring justice. It is a terrifying form of justice, um, but yeah, he brings you
3: know, it. The hammer of
2: God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So,
3: so Joe, Joe Lando's preference wasn't really superheroes. Mm-hmm. So, it's really ironic that he chose the Spectre. And, and actually, he, he probably made him less of a superhero, more of an anti-hero. And in this case, before that became, you know, The Rage. Right, so right. He, he was definitely headed of the curve here. And, and just as a, a side note, I came this close to work with Joe Orlando on a book. He was starting a new series, and I was one of the artists under consideration, and then it just didn't go forward. Oh, so man. I missed out.
2: But you're right. I mean, he, the Spectre in this is an anti-hero. This is the type of hero that we would see with the Punisher 10 years after this. Yeah. And the type of characters that, you know, Marvel and Image, that they really propelled into the forefront in the 80s and 90s. That anti-hero, Charles Bronson, Deathwish type of character. The Spectre was doing it back in 73, just with a sort of supernatural superpower set.
3: Yeah, and he wasn't doing it with all this angst and, mm-hmm. and um, you know personal vendetta yeah. because actually, and this is another thing I want to tie that Michael Fleischer doing his homework. Cause you go to page nine, uh, when him and him and Hank are chit chatting and Hank asked what what do I want? And the specter replies, I want to sleep forever in a nice warm grave, Hank. I want everlasting peace. that was rightfully mine. <laughs> and that is exactly from, um, more fun 52 where, after, just before he's being brought up by God, he says, no, I just want eternal peace. Right. And God says, no, nah, I want you to do this job for me on earth. And so, and so this, this just shows that he still doesn't want to do this. But the only way he can have peace is to get rid of all the vermin. And again, this becomes his motivating factor of, and a justification for why he's dealing with these crooks the way he, he does. So they don't come back. So they don't go into re- the revolving door of the jail system or the legal system. You know, it's just like one and done. You know, I kind of move on to the next one and clear all this vermin off the earth, so I can get some rest.
2: <laughs> and there is a cathartic sort of appeal to that. There is certainly. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm pretty liberal and think about like I, I, you know, I don't support capital punishment, but you know, when you when you look at stories like this and and you know, you watch like movies uh, like Death Wish and everything, you like to see the bad guy get killed and put mm-hmm. down and. And there's, I, I certainly see the appeal to that, and how that, on an emotional level, that can be very strong and very powerful. And the release you get it from these scenes, you get it from these comics. So,
3: yeah, and that, that's what that's what makes it such such a guilt read. Is mm-hmm. is so visceral, and it's not something that a normal person would do themselves. But you do enjoy watching it happen. I mean, exactly,
2: exactly. <laughs> that's why we go to the movies. That's why we read the comics and the books and everything. <laughs> Um one other thing part of the the creative team about here, Fleischer had been working for Joe Orlando on some of his mystery books. Like prior to doing this, he had been doing like a lot of like short horror stories in like the House of Mystery and such. Um Jim Aparo According to Sanderson's essay the beginning, Orlando picked Jim Aparo because they had worked so well together on the story The Demon Within that Rob Kelly and I reviewed back on Midnight Episode 1 because they actually won an award for that story the following year. So uh, it, was, it was pretty cool that uh, Orlando was like, yeah, Jim Aparo is the right guy. He can do this. He, I want to work with him again. So
3: Yeah, that's definitely a good choice.
2: That is all the notes that I have for this story. Did you have anything else for The Wrath of the Spectre? Uh
3: I think I covered everything. Oh, just, just one thing in general. Because from this the golden age, even from the first issue, his powers were already expanded to, to be able to do like whatever he wanted, like what he needs because mm-hmm. all this transmutation, you know, wasn't in his original thing. But Jerry Siegel described his powers in like the first on the first page. But already in that in that same panel Bernard Bailey's always given him that growing ability, you know, which which is never uh, referred to. It never says that he grows, you know, throughout the early part of the series.
2: He just keeps drawing him that way. <laughs> <laughs> just keeps doing it until th- somebody tells him to stop.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so between the artists and the writers, you know, they just did what they had to do to get the Spectre to get his uh, spiritual justice.
2: Yeah. Uh, speaking of that, one thing that I want to kind of keep track of as I go through these stories is the Spectre's kill count. Uh, And in this issue, he kills three people. He forces one driver off the road who dies in a car crash. He melts a guy, starting with the gun, then his hands, and then his whole body. And the last one, we don't see exactly how it happens because the lights are off, but he turns a guy into a skeleton. So basically, he peels the skin, the muscle, the tissue, everything off of him somehow. So, Pretty gruesome. Howard, thank you very much for being my guest on this episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. Where can people find you online or what projects would you like to promote?
3: Hey, you're welcome. I'm happy to be here. And you can find me online on my website, abadabba.com, and check out my web comics on Webtoon. I'm doing something called Romantical Tales, and I'm taking the 40s and 50s romance comics and doing a satirical spin on them So with some of my own comics. So if you like the synopsis, I think you like romantic Tales. So check that out on Webtoons.
2: Very, very cool. Thank you one more time. It was great to have you on the show.
3: One more thing, one more thing. Yep. Uh, I have a Patreon page now, so you can support an artist.
2: Very cool. Do that, definitely. Thank you very much one more time. It was great talking to you.
3: It was um, nice to, to you, Ryan. I like these. Uh, it makes me feel like a fan, you know, to... Chit and chat and go into these comics again.
2: All right, listeners, I'll be back in a second with your listener feedback. Don't go away. Since last episode, midnight, the podcasting hour has received new Twitter favorites and retweets from Alan Middleton, Ange, Between the Pages, Brett Harris, Cash Flag, AKA Al, Coffee and Comics Blog, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Crazed Wingnut, DSNRs, RS, Ed Moore, Ed Moore, Ed Moore, Ed Moore, Ed Moore Jr., Anigo Montoya, Film and Water Podcast, Firestorm Fan, Fire and Water Network. Gabriel M. Cox, Greg Arugio, Hicks, Jeremy Gunter, Joe Crawford, Justice's First Dawn, Keith G. Baker, Laurel, Longbox Crusade, Mario, Max Romero, Pod Dylan, Rift, Rolled Spine Podcast, Siskoid, Slangward Scott, Steven Bird, Sin, Tony Wolf, Treasury Comics, Trekker Talk, Warlord Worlds, Wild Dog Podcast, and Xenozoic Xenophiles. Facebook likes and shares came from Abel Padilla, A.F. Raul Gonzalez, Adam Stabelli, Alan Ricks, Al Sedano, Clinton Robinson, Chris Franklin, Coffee and Comics Block, David Foster, H. Daniel Rybold, Jeremy Gunter, Keith G. Baker, Martin Gray, Matthew Parmenter, Max Romero, Mike Peacock, Michael Scuderlo, Pat Sampson, Rob Kelly, The Irredeemable Shag, and Silver and Gold Podcast. I've gotten a couple of new iTunes reviews in the last month, which are great because the more reviews, the easier it is for new listeners to discover the show. I I guess. I mean, really, I just like the ego bump. The first review came from Nathaniel over at Council of Geeks, who said, A look at the DC horror comics of the 70s and 80s, complete with its own spooky opening segments before host Ryan Daly, who really needs to stop making the rest of us look so bad, and his rotating guests tackle such luminaries as Swamp Thing, Dead Man, and the House of Mystery. If you know Ryan's work, then you already know the show is quality. That's a good ego bump right there. Well done. The next review came from Chris Franklin. Ryan Daly has assembled a murderer's row of podcasters to discuss an often-overlooked subgenre of DC Comics, the horror-mystery characters. From one-off tales of terror to household names like Swamp Thing, Midnight the Podcasting Hour covers every crypt in the vast DC universe. Plus, you get to hear original, chilling tales from host PJ Frightful. If you love comics in general, and horror in particular, it's frightening to think you're missing out on this one. Thank you for that one, Chris. And lastly, we got a review on the iTunes UK page from Martalex. This podcast from the Fire & Water Network sees DC's library of spooky characters curated by PJ Frightful. The horrible host opens his rotting doors to Ryan, Deadly Daily, and creepy co-hosts to discuss Swamp Thing, Deadman, Night Force, and more. Non-series shorts culled from the lakes of House of Secrets, Tales of the Unexpected, and Ghosts add random revulsion. So, dare you enter the podcast of pain? You know, just based on the voice of that review, I'm going to assume that Martalex is Martin Gray from Too Dangerous for a Girl. In which case, cheers, Mart. Ta for the kind words. Okay, let's see. Was anybody else talking about this show lately? Oh yeah, I got a very nice plug from Pat Sampson, the host of Longbox Crusade, on his most recent episode. But the nature of this show stirred up a bit of controversy with Pat and his guest, Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist. Here's what they had to say.
4: I hope you enjoyed the promo for It's Midnight, the podcasting hour, from a friend of the show, Ryan Daly. This is a new podcast that Ryan has started around Halloween time, so I've been enjoying the last three episodes. Hopefully you can give it a try too. And let us know what you think. Now, I just—I
5: haven't gotten. To, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, I, go ahead. My bad, dude. No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say I haven't haven't uh, gotten a chance to listen to that show yet because I just don't stay up that late. <laughs> you know, so yeah, maybe sometime. Is is it? Well, it's not live, is it? I could listen to it. Yeah, I yeah. could listen to it whenever I wanted to. You could listen to but it. But I whenever. feel like you should. You're you supposed could. to listen to it at midnight.
4: You know, I was thinking the same thing last night. Yeah. I was thinking, you know, because I, when I listen to it, I'm like, I should listen to this at midnight. Yeah. And when it comes out, just to get that feeling. Because Ryan does a great job of, if you get a chance to listen to this, Ryan does a great job of, there's like little stories in in the beginning of each episode that he does. It's like mm-hmm. watching Tales from the Crypt. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. He does a little. I, yeah. yeah. He does these little spooky tales. And then goes, you know, and then he goes into the show. But I'm like, oh, I should listen to this. Just episode three, I listened to you. And I'm like, I should be listening to this at midnight.
5: I would do that, except then I remember that I'm like 40. Yeah. And uh, I don't know about you, man, but I don't make it to midnight anymore. I'm like, well, it's 945. It's time to go to
4: sleep. (laughs) <laughs> well, well, yeah. I kind of make it to I kind of make it to midnight, and then about four o'clock, five o'clock, I make it from the couch where I fell asleep. Back in the- <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. I hear you. If you're listening to us, listen to Ryan's show. Um, just those segments alone uh, are well worth the listen.
5: Yeah, and Ryan, if you get a chance, could you do something like 9:30 uh, p.m. is the podcasting <laughs> hour? That would be fantastic for my lifestyle. <laughs>
4: Uh, what, it? what what is that? That's um senior time or whatever.
5: Yeah, I know. I'm I'm 40 now, man. 9:30 is the podcasting hour at the latest.
4: <laughs> maybe you gotta. Maybe you might have to move in order to uh, go to the West Coast in order to. Get yeah, there you time go. Time
5: there you go. Move to a different time zone. <laughs> Well, I can't rebrand the show
2: as 9.30 The Podcasting Hour, but if we last more than 50 episodes, we can put them in syndication weekdays after school. How does that sound? Oh, speaking of sounds, that one means I'll talk to you again in two weeks.
0: Midnight, The Podcasting Hour, is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at FireAndWaterPodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the Podcasting Hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight, the Podcasting Hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.